you probably know that these are difficult times for museums all across the country. People just have a lot less time and it's difficult to engage people enough to come in, spend a huge chunk of their day to hear these stories of history and, and art and science and music and all the other things that museums do, stories museums tell. But in Kansas City, on the corner of 18th and Vine, there's a little museum uh, doing quite well. Uh, that's the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. And it tells the story of the Negro Leagues, uh, those leagues that existed uh, solely because there was no room in Major League Baseball for African-American players, dark-skinned Latin players. So they created a league of their own. And the stories out of the Negro Leagues are funny and, and touching and emotional and, and heartbreaking. And the museum does a wonderful job. It's not a big place, but you go in there and it, it'll touch you. And I think the big reason the museum is doing well is uh, my friend, uh, the president of the museum, Bob Kendrick. I've known Bob for uh, 20 Five years, I guess, maybe more. We're we're friends, uh, but we've been through a lot together. And I wanted to talk to Bob a little bit about storytelling. So I began by asking him exactly how he tries to go about telling the story of the Negro Leagues through a museum. Well, you know, and, and it's such an amazing story, Joe. And I think what we try to do, and particularly for me, is to incorporate many of the great stories that, of course, our friend Buck O'Neill shared with both of us for so many years into the story of the museum itself and the mindset behind how we wanted to treat the way this story was represented and presented. And so you kind of meld the two together. The Negro Leagues were so, no pun intended, so colorful <laughs> that it lends itself to storytelling. Yeah, and, and, I, and I really do think that is the best way to present it, and it's certainly the most engaging way. And, and so to be able to bring it to life through stories from the players, relating back stories as it relates to the evolution of this museum, seems to certainly engage people. And I, and I think that's what I try to do, is incorporate a little bit of that from what we learned from Bug, what I've heard through the years from other players like Monty Irvin and some of the other guys that I've had the, the great pleasure to be with and, and then encapsulate those stories into how we present the general story of the Negro League. And to this point, it seemed to be pretty effective. Well, it's, it's look, I, I can't recommend enough for people to come out to the museum. I've been to the museum literally hundreds of times and I, I get something new out of it every single time I come. One of my favorite parts of the museum, you know this, we've talked about this a lot, uh, and this was this was designed this way. When you walk into the museum, uh, you see the the field with you know with all of the player statues, and it's 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 really so cool to see, and and it's the greatest some of the greatest Negro League players, and it's a baseball diamond, and and you got a scoreboard, and you got the 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 foul lines and everything else, and you got all these statues of the great players, Satchel Paige and Josh Gibson and Oscar Charleston and all the rest, but you can't get to it. You're blocked by chicken wire, and that is that's such a powerful way to like enter into the museum. Well, there's a lot of symbolism. There's no question about it. 
uh, and so even as you related that, you essentially walk into an old ballpark. Yeah. And as you touched on, the first thing you see is the field of legends. And if you are unfamiliar with the story and you walk in and you see this amazing field with these life-size bronze sculptures and they're all cast in position as if they were playing a game, I think immediately people say, oh, man, I can't wait to get out there. But you can't get there. Right. At least you can't get there until you learn their story. And, and so once you've kind of bared witness to everything that these athletes had to endure to be able to take the field in the major leagues, then you are allowed to take the field here. And, and I really think that our visitors get it. One of my favorite memories, Joe, goes back to 1997 when we had the grand opening of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum in our new location, our present home, and the wizard, the yeah. great Ozzie. When he walked out on that field, man, it was a very emotional experience for him. He was moved to tears because he understood that he stood on the shoulders of these immortal uh, men who had paved that way, so to speak. You know, Buck always talked about it. The, the men who played in the Negro Leagues built the bridge. Right. And that's what this museum represents. It represents and it pays homage to those who built the bridge. Well, the wizard was one of those who crossed over the bridge. As, as well as did other African-American Hispanic baseball players as they transitioned into the major leagues. But rarely in this country do we recognize and pay honor to the bridge builders. Well, that's what we do here at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. We honor the people who built the bridge. And, and Avi Smith, you know, being as aware as he is about the history of this game and knowing the, his place in this game, certainly understood that he stood on these men's shoulders to be able to put together a Hall of Fame career a game that he loved so much, and it was a very emotional experience for for him then, and I think it still is every time that he comes back here. Yeah, it's 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 amazing how much it grips people. Um, you know, considering it is, you know, we're talking about uh, really the the heart of of the of the Negro Leagues is the '30s and '40s and, and into the '50s, but we're you know that's now we're talking about that 75, 80, 85 years ago, and. And, oh, yeah? you know, but it feels so current. Uh, for one thing, it's not as long ago as people think it is. I mean, it's, we're only really, you know, a few, you know, a couple of generations <laughs> away. But more, it's, there's such a direct line between what they achieved, uh, where they brought this country, helped bring this country, uh, and where we are now. I mean, it, there's just a very, you, you can see a very direct line and you would see it, you know, with guys like, like Ozzy Smith, who would come in, uh, players of that generation. Uh, but then you see it in, in some of the newer generations when Tory Hunter came and how emotional he was oh, about the museum. It's absolutely. really interesting. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, uh, Ryan Howard immediately came yeah. to mind. Because Ryan Howard, Joe, had been coming here before we even knew who Ryan Howard was. <laughs> he was still just a, you know, a youngster in the Phillies organization at that time. And he would come here every year because I think for him it was almost a rites of passage yeah. because he had great respect. And it started with his parents who also had great respect and knew a lot about the Negro leagues and passed that down to, to him and his siblings. And so he would come here in, in, I think almost in a vein in which he said, okay, now I can go down to Florida and whatever they throw at me, I'll be okay. You know what I mean? Because it will pale in comparison to what these guys had to endure to play baseball. And that's why I say I think it was almost a rite of passage. And for years, even after he became the star player that we knew him to be in those years, and 
and, and he would still come back every year to kind of pay homage, yeah. you know, and then go back down to spring training. And, and so it, it, you know, that made us all feel good too, because again, you know, the modern day athlete, and, and I understand these kids are young. They are so young. You know, they don't know nothing about the history of baseball. <laughs> they don't know very little, you know, in general history as it relates to baseball and certainly don't know a whole lot about the Negro Leagues unless somebody sat you down and told you about it. And so obviously that's a big part of my job is to make sure that we reach out to them as often as we can to introduce them to this story. But to a baseball player that has ever been here, they're all in awe of this experience once we get them here. Yeah. You know, that's the biggest challenge is getting them to come. But once we get them here, every single one of them, most recently I had the New York Mets here. So we had, of course, Curtis Grandison, who had been here on a number, number of occasions, particularly when he was with the Tigers. And, and with the Yankees. So he was back. He brought Neil Walker and he brought David Wright. And, and then some of the other Mets coaches and, and administrators came down and they were just awe in awe, you know. And, and so hopefully they'll continue to spread the word about their experience, experience and we'll get more people, to, particular players, to come in and experience this as well. Yeah, it's it's so cool to see new people come in and, and, uh, and you know, and it's black and white. You know, I mean, everybody relates to the story uh, if you're a ball player, I mean, you relate to the story of these guys and and the the joy and the passion uh, and also exactly. the difficulties of playing in the Negro Leagues because they love the game so much and and, and it's and really cool. That's it. That that to me is it in a nutshell. And, and I tell all the young athletes that the one common denominator that they share with those who played in the Negro Leagues is a unbridled love of this game. The yeah. modern day athlete loves this game too. They're still playing a game that they played for free. They played it as a child. And now they obviously get a chance to make a great living doing it, but they still love the game. And as I share with them, Joe, you will never see a greater example of love of the game than you do when you come to the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. They have to love it in order to endure the things that they endure, yet never let it kill their love of this sport. And so they all relate to that. They get, they get it. And, you know, they can appreciate the feats that these athletes were able to do under such tremendous social adversity. You know, not knowing where you're going to get something to eat, not having a place to stay. So you slept on the bus, you ate your peanut butter and crackers because you couldn't get a meal in the same town from the same fans who just cheered you. But yet you still found that wherewithal to get out there and go keep playing ball. You know, and I think everybody can relate to that fighting and that triumphant spirit. No question. No question. Yeah, you know, when you talk about the young players playing today, we're going to spend pretty much the second half of, of, of this talking about Buck O'Neill. Uh, and I always remember you were there when, when it happened as well, when this woman comes up to Buck and is talking about when she was growing up and how she used to go to spring training. And she said to Buck, uh, oh, you know, that's, that's when baseball was baseball. And Buck said to her, baseball is still baseball. Like baseball does. <laughs> baseball is still the greatest game. And, and it's true. I mean, it, it's, it's easy to forget that, that these young players today who, who still need to learn about the history of the game uh, and need to, you know, should know more about the Negro leagues. Well, you know what? Our generation wasn't any better when we were young. You know what I mean? It's like, it's like it takes age and it takes some experience to, to begin to look back and, and fully appreciate just who, you know, that that's a bridge to the game today. It's not just a bridge for, you know, that, you know, he, he said, Hey, the, the players who walked across your Jackie Robinson's and Larry Doby's and Willie Mays and Henry Aaron's, 
but it's the game that we play today uh, is is the game that it is today in large part because of the Negro Leagues and because of the way that they play the game. They changed the game, and that's one of the fun parts of going to the museum as well, is it was a different kind of baseball and a much more exciting kind of baseball. Oh, absolutely. And you heard Buck say it on countless occasions. The guys in the Negro League never thought that the major leagues were better than them. Right. But everybody else did. Yeah. And, and so they wanted to showcase what they could do. They wanted to prove to the world that they were as good as anyone who had to ever play this game. And so, and you're right, it was a different style of baseball. It was fast and it was aggressive and it was daring. Guys were bunting their way on base and they were stealing bases. And, you know, Buck would say, Joe, the major leaguers would oftentimes accuse them of showboating. <laughs> if a guy went in the hole and flipped it behind his back, to start the double play, which, of course, we now see every night as a top 10 sports center highlight. But, you know, Buck would always say it's only showboating when you can't do it. That's right. <laughs> you know, and, and so, but fans flocked to see that because, as he said, you couldn't go to the concession stand because you might miss something you ain't never seen before. Yeah. And, and so they were filling up bog parks all over the country with a really, really exciting brand of baseball. Some will say the best baseball being played in this country. Others will certainly say the most, without question, the most exciting brand of baseball that was being played, and it was Negro Leagues baseball. Well, I mean, look look at how quickly, and this is something we've talked about many times, look how quickly uh, that that kind of baseball was infused, especially into the National League, which was obviously yeah. much more open to, to, to bringing in African-American players in the early years. Look at what Jackie Robinson did. Look at what Willie Mays did. Look at what Hank Aaron did. Look at what, what, uh, you know, so many of these early players, how they changed the game and made it faster and, and brought the bunt back into the game and stolen base back into the game. And, and that's, that's not just, that's not a byproduct. That is the Negro Leagues being infused into the major leagues. And that's why the National League was so dominant for so many years. Yeah, that's 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 that style that Jackie brought over with him, and then subsequently the other guys did as well. And you speak of Willie Mays. I was with Willie here recently, and we had a, a just a, a quick moment together where we were uh, had some time and a couple other people around, and he starts to talk about Satchel Paige, and Joe he lights up, <laughs> just absolutely lights up, and, and he says, "Yeah, I faced Satchel when I was 16 years old." And playing for the Birmingham Black Bears. And he says, first time I faced Satchel, I hit a double off on him. And he says, Satchel looked like he may have been 55 then. <laughs> and so <laughs> he says, the next time I come up, Satchel throws three straight pitches right by me. I never saw them. <laughs> and, and, and he says, Satchel says to me, now go sit down, little boy. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. And though so he just lit up as he was remembering Satchel Paige, the great Willie Mays. Many believe the greatest Major League Baseball player of all time. It's but a... his recollection of Satchel was absolutely priceless. Yeah. You know, uh, and so, but those are the stories that we, we have here. And those are the stories that I think we want to make sure they stand the test of time as it relates to those heroes of the Negro League. One of my favorite things, and, and, and we're going to talk about Buck here, uh, but before we do that, at the museum, you've, you've hosted an incredible 
collection of people. I mean, from all walks of life, you've had presidents that you've taken through there. You've had uh, entertainers of all kinds. Uh, you've had really the 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 greatest baseball players who ever lived. I mean, just a vast number of them have gone through there. But one of my favorite parts is when you get toward the end of your of your tour at the museum, you come upon this long uh, table, I guess, uh, which has glass on it, and there are hundreds of autographed yeah. baseballs, hundreds of autographed yeah. baseballs, and those were donated by. Getty Lee. <laughs> Getty Lee of Getty Rush. Getty Lee of Rush. <laughs> Lee singer, bass guitarist of the legendary Hall of Fame rock group Rush. Now, you have to and tell that story. See, you should see the, the the look on people's faces <laughs> when they see this display that's dedicated to Getty Lee. Because, as you mentioned, it's an incredible collection oh, yeah. of single-signed Negro League, auto, Negro League player autographed baseballs. Well, Rush played a concert here several years ago. And Getty has a good friend that lives here who says, hey, man, I'm going to take you by to see the Negro League Baseball Museum. As we all know, Getty is a huge baseball fan. You can still see him at Toronto Blue Jay games all the time. Sure. So he says, I'm going to take you by to see the Negro League Baseball Museum. I was gone that day. So one of my uh, associates here actually gave him the tour. But like most who come here, he fell in love yep. with the museum. And so after leaving the museum, a collection of single-signed Negro League player autographed baseballs come up in an auction. He decides that he would bid on them with the expressed intent of donating them back to the Negro League Baseball Museum. So he wins the bid. His office calls and says, Getty has a few baseballs he'd like to donate. <laughs> would you all like to have them? Well, naturally, we say yes, but we're thinking yeah, maybe three or four that he picked up somewhere. Joe, it turned out to be 200. <laughs> he has since donated an additional lot of 200, now giving the Negro Leagues Museum one of the largest collection of single-signed Negro League player autographed baseballs anywhere in the world, and it's all due to the benevolence of one Getty Lee, a white Canadian rocker. <laughs> and, and again, it just goes to show that the story has no boundaries, it has no limits, it touches virtually everyone who experiences it. And, and you know, with that, that collection being from him, makes it that much, I think, even more meaningful. Oh, sure. And the fact that not only did he donate them, Joe, he came back and dedicated them. Wow. And so, you know, I didn't know a whole lot about Rush before, <laughs> but I am a Rush fan now. <laughs> it's it's such a great story and it does it crosses it crosses so many boundaries i mean universal i mean people internationally who don't know anything about baseball hear about it they come to the museum and they're blown away they're blown away by this story because it's an american story i mean we're drawn to it for the baseball but it's not a baseball story it's an american story no it, it really is uh and to be frankly baseball is just a a small premise to a much grandiose story, sure. yet it's still such a, a just a special part of the story of the game of baseball. But you're right; it's much bigger than baseball. You know, this is about economic emp empowerment. It's about leadership. It's ultimately about the social advancement of our country, and it's all wrapped inside a, a, a wonderful story of baseball. And it, but it combines everything I think we enjoy: it's baseball and American history. And for the more majority of the people who come here. This is a brand new history, man. Yeah. 
They had no way to learn about this. You didn't have a chance to learn this when you were in school. So we all went through our formal educations without knowing one of the most significant chapters, not in just baseball history, but in American history. And that's the story of the Negro League. It's so great. It's so great. All right. So now you and I are going to do one of our favorite things. We're going to, we're going to <laughs> tell Buck O'Neill stories. Um, so I, I should give the, uh, just a small background in, in that. Uh, I wrote my first book was called The Soul of Baseball, Road Trip Through Buck O'Neill's America. And I traveled the country uh, with Buck uh, in the land. It what ended up being the last year of his life. Um, Buck was traveling all over the country, uh, talking about baseball, being uh, the, the great spokesman for the game that he was. Uh, everybody, I'm sure, listening knows who Buck O'Neill was. Great player. Uh, great manager in the Negro Leagues, uh, legendary scout, the first African American coach, but more than anything, just one of the one of the truly great people of, of the 20th century. And you were there with me almost every step of the way. I will I will point <laughs> out Nicodemus. <laughs> yeah, we, one of the first parts of the book is we go out to this little town uh, that was actually built by slaves after. Uh, after the Civil War, it, it was one of the first towns that was a it was it was freed slaves uh, living in Nicodemus, uh, which is out in the middle of nowhere of Kansas, uh, which was several hour drive. Somehow you skipped that trip. <laughs> you, you were there with us in New York. You had no problem with the New York trip. But Nicodemus, <laughs> you were a little busy for that one. Uh, but you were there almost every step of the way. And we had an amazing I'll never forget it. I know you'll never forget it. You, you uh, obviously worked very closely with Buck at the museum as well. Um, I wrote about Buck many, many times before, but there was something so special, don't you think, about that was Buck at his, he was still oh, no. at his best, you know? Oh, no question. No question. And, you know, we both, I think all three of us, were really lamenting how much we were gone that summer. Yeah. And, you know, and I reflect on it oftentimes, and, you know, and, I, and I'm a fan, too. I've read the book several times, and, and I still reflect, you know, now that Buck is gone, it was probably the greatest summer of my life. Yeah, me too. You know, you know we, I don't, although at that time, I don't think we looked at it that way, because <laughs> all three of us were constantly on the road, and we were talking about our wives and significant others not allowing us back in because we were gone so much. <laughs> but then the very next year, he's gone, and you realize how great was that to spend an entire summer hanging out with Buck O'Neill. Unbelievable. And uh, yeah, we yeah were, and, you're right. And, you know, so it just took on even more meaning for me. Well, it did. I mean, you're right. I mean, it was, it was, we were gone a lot. I mean, you know, I look back at that book and realize, wow, we were in Houston and oh, we were in California and oh, we were in New York and oh, we were in Chicago and oh, we were in Atlanta. And, and, and I think, and I think one of the hottest days I've ever experienced <laughs> in Washington, D.C. Oh, that's right. I don't know. You know, I don't know if it can get any hotter than it was that day in Washington, D.C., man. You know, but all those, you know, those days were so memorable. And, you know, and there we are in D.C. and Linda Carter, you know, walking <laughs> into the TV studio when we're walking out. And, and, and Buck is embracing Linda Carter, you know, Wonder Woman. Yeah. And, 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 and you know, so all those great memories, uh, you know, those things will stay with me. For as long as I live. Yeah, I, it was it was really incredible, and and I think it was really a very special summer for Buck too. I mean, it was that the, I you talk about Washington. We were we had lunch in the Senate lunchroom uh, when we were in Washington, and you remember Buck 
in the middle of this saying, oh, if only if Mama O'Neill could see her son <laughs> sitting yeah. in the Senate yeah. lunchroom at the in, in Washington, yeah. D.C., uh, eating baby beans. Eating his baby, baby beans. Exactly right, those baby beans. Um, <laughs> it was amazing. I mean, it really was amazing. But I think it was amazing in large part because because he was so amazing. I mean, he was at that time yeah. he was ninety three and ninety four. So we caught him through that whole yeah. year. He turned ninety four while this while the book was being done, and he was still so focused on the mission, you know, the message and getting the story out there and talking baseball. And, and it was, it was astounding because you and I'd be exhausted and he'd be, yeah. he'd be ready to go. He's ready to go. He was ready to go. And I think that's why Joe, when he got sick, you know, it was, it's rare that a guy 94 year old die and we're all surprised. Exactly. We were all surprised. Because, you know, we know that no one's going to live forever, but if anybody was, it was going to be Buck O'Neill. Yeah. Buck was going to outlive everybody. And, and so, because he was so charismatic and so energetic, and, you know, he would oftentimes pop it here to the museum. I'm getting ready to get on the elevator, just come up one floor, and here comes Buck running up the stairs. And I'm like, oh, God, I can't get on the elevator now. So I got to go up the stairs with Buck. You know, but that was who Buck was, and he, and he just... He, he affected people in ways that, quite frankly, I had never seen before. Right. And, and you know, we were there for the ride. We saw this firsthand, the the way that people were so moved by this man. You well, know, even when they didn't know who he was. Even when they didn't know who he was. I, I think that's the great point. There was there was a power about him that just came out naturally. And you and I were there in New York when we went down that elevator and that woman <laughs> came on. She looked like she was having the worst day of her life, and by the time the elevator hits the floor, she's the happiest person you've ever seen. <laughs> All just for being around Buck. And Buck is just like, how just you doing? You're you're a, yeah. you you're special to live in New York. Think about it. You get to live in New York. I, I just, the way he would just engage people. But here, here's something I've thought a lot about and certainly written a lot about, but I'm, I'm curious what you think and what you've thought about this. One of the powers of Buck O'Neill was that he refused, utterly refused, to feel any bitterness. It just yeah. he wouldn't he wouldn't feel it. And this was someone who had things to be bitter about. I mean, this was someone who who definitely did not get to do some of the things that he would have loved to do: manage in the big leagues, play in the big leagues, uh, coach in the big leagues. You know, he he had that time with the Cubs, but it was it was yeah. they kind of hit him in the corner. They didn't really want uh, him out on the field. Um, yeah. He didn't get to do those things, and there were a lot of things he didn't get to do. And a lot of years before Ken Burns really came along, where people wouldn't listen to him and would not hear his stories, and yet he refused to be bitter. Why? Why do you think that is? Where did that strength come from? I, I asked him about that. I said, "But where does it come from?" And he told me something that just absolutely blew me away. And it was Vintage Buck. He says, "My daddy told me to always treat every treat every man the way you want to be treated. The golden rule." Now, we all know the golden rule. <laughs> we all know it. We all do. Yeah, but we don't all live the golden rule. And, and, and Buck took something that his father said to him when he was a boy. And, and just as our parents have probably said to the more majority of us, just treat every man the way you want to be treated. Right. And, and he lived that. He embraced it and, and then lived it. And, and he did it in such a wonderful way because you're absolutely right. If he had been bitter, we would have all said you had every reason to be bitter. 
but he never allowed his heart to be hardened with hate. And I think that's why he lived such a long, fulfilled life, because the glass was always halfway full with Buck, never halfway empty. Never. And the reason that I think he was he came he jumped off the screen in the Ken Burns documentary is because Ken Burns was smart enough to say, Buck, you tell the story mm-hmm. the way you remember the story. I'm not going to tell you to tell the story the way I think I know the story. I wasn't there. You tell it. And and, and Buck was so captivating. It it was magical. You know, those moments that he was on screen during that Ken Burns documentary. Yeah. I, you know, and he had this ability when he was tired, because he would get tired. I mean, he was, yeah. he, he was in his 90s. He'd get tired and he would find a way. Either he'd go to the, his room, he'd sneak out for, you know, he, he was, he was an expert at sneaking out. You know, he would be, Hey, where'd Buck go? And, you know, he'd be gone. <laughs> he'd be napping somewhere. So he, he, he found his time, but he also, he, fed off of the energy of people. That was the thing I just found so fascinating was when he was around a lot of people, look, he could, he could, it could get to be too much too, but he would just go talk to a little boy who was, who was, you know, had a a baseball glove on or, or he would talk to some mom uh, and ask her, you know, do you remember your first baseball game? Or, or he would be in a restaurant. You, how many times did you and I see this? And he would look at some other table and go, how is that? Is that good? Is that food good? (laughs) That that looks really good. I think I'm going to get, you know, and he just, but he fed off of that energy. And I, I've never seen anything quite like that. I mean, it was like, it was, you know, not to get, too spiritual, but it was like this life force that he would, he would like, he would give out and he would take in. It was, it was yeah. really fascinating to see. It really was. And again, you know, we were both there for the ride. So, you know, we witnessed this time and time and time yeah. again. He was absolutely energized by people. Yeah. And, you know, and so, yeah, and, and he gave it back. You know, he gave it back as much as he received it. And I think as a result, people just were amazingly endeared to Buck. It warmed my heart when he passed away, Joe, the number of people who took time to either write or call, send emails saying, hey, I met Buck O'Neill and it changed my life. Yeah. You know, uh, just a chance encounter. You know, you just don't see that. You know, we talk about it all the time in Hollywood. They call it the it factor and you know, you don't know what it is, but you kind of recognize it when you see it. Right. And Buck had it. He had it. You know, he would walk in a room and the room lit up, you know, <laughs> and everybody wanted to gravitate to old Buck. And, and, and you know, he just gave that positive energy and, and he received it and people gave it back to him. And, you know, it was, again, it was, a, it was an amazing thing to see. It really was. It really was. Now, you and I do this uh, every every time we go through Atlanta. And actually go, so we, we, we have seen Buck at his worst. I mean, it's not like we always saw Buck at his best. So I'm going to have you tell the story, but I, I, I will just, just lead off by saying that every time we come to this escalator that's in this story, I take a picture of it or you take a picture of it and we send it to each other. So what were, were we even changing planes or were we actually in Atlanta? I think we were in Atlanta. We were, we were in Atlanta getting ready to come back to Kansas City. It was a time that we had spent the time going to the little school in Atlanta right. where we couldn't find the school. The guy was taking us around. You know, it was all those peach trees in Atlanta. We circled all over trying to find that school. We must have driven around the place uh, a hundred times and we couldn't find the school. But anyway, we're on our way home. And we, uh, if you've been in Hartsville International, 
you know it's a, a humongous place. And, and they've got this escalator. I swear, it looks like it goes from the ground into heaven. It's into just heaven. so long, <laughs> and it's straight up. And, and so the escalator is down. And, and I'm like, okay, guys, the escalator's not working. You know, let's go over and get on the elevator. And, no, we can make it, Buck O'Neill. We can make it. And, and I'm like, uh, this is not a good idea. Not a good idea. And so <laughs> we start up the escalator. And I don't even know if we had gotten halfway up when Buck realized, uh-oh, this was not uh, a good idea. But you can't go back there because there's a row of people following us up the escalator. And, and you know, my legs were burning. And, and I was half a Buck's age. And here we are, huffing and puffing, trying to get up to the top of this escalator. <laughs> and thankfully, we finally made it, and it didn't kill Buck, and it didn't kill one of us, you know, in the process. Of, but it was hilarious to see the fact that the realization when he knew, like, oh, Buck, this was not the smartest thing you've ever done. <laughs> we... we... The last, I'd say, 20 steps, we had people behind kind of rooting Buck on. We had people like, you can do it. You can make it. And how about you and I getting talked into doing this by a 94-year-old man, by the way? I mean, oh, man, just... exactly. Exactly. I'll say, well, it was the smartest thing I've ever done no, we, we I got went to... along with it. Well, <laughs> when we got to the top, he said that. He goes, that was not the smartest decision I've ever made. I mean, it was it – was, amazing but but that was Bach I mean that was you know that was sort of another side of Bach and I think I think you and I talked about this in the sort of the last months of his life when he was you know when he was in and out of the hospital and he, he couldn't live like that Bach needed to be independent that was that was such a big part and I, I think a lot of people who you know your, your, your grandparents and that kind of thing you see that in them as well you know, Buck needed to drive. Buck needed to. I remember yeah. you and I in Houston. Speaking of Houston, when that woman came with the wheelchair for Buck, I, I thought Buck was oh. going to like bite her head off. I mean, he was like, <laughs> "Do I look like I need a wheelchair?" Like I, I mean, he was. You know, he was. Uh, although I will say this, I will say this, Buck was. He was, of course, very kind to her, but he was. He was. He was definitely offended that she brought the wheelchair. But then when we got to the gate. They said, okay, anybody who needs a little extra time, it's only Buck stands up. He's limping to the door. Like, like that was the one time Buck would act his age was to get on the plane first. That was... Getting on the plane. <laughs> he didn't mind doing that. He was so funny. He would get offended if they asked him for if he wanted 2% milk. I don't want no 2% milk. I want whole milk. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> uh, he was... He was... He was just priceless. He was just priceless. All right, so you know, there'll, is, there'll never be another buckle meal. Never there be another absolutely one. will never be another buckle meal. All right, you and I have to go over the moment that uh, it's still, you know, it's still so haunting. So we were there together uh, the day that he did not get into the baseball hall of fame, and ten years ago. Yeah, ten years ago. That's exactly right. Ten years ago, ten years ago. and. You know, we've told the story, both you and I have told it many times, you know, we're in the room with Buck and, and, and how graceful he was and gracious he was and how he immediately, you know, wanted to know if, if the, you know, the Hall of Fame would want him to speak on behalf of the, yeah. the 17 who got in uh, when he did not get in, which is, you know, that's, that's just, that's sainthood stuff. You know what I mean? I mean, that's like, that's not, oh, absolutely. that's not something absolutely. any of us can touch. I mean, we were so much angrier than he was. I mean, we were... Oh. 
we were both so much angry. You no, know, I'm, I'm trying to be more buck like I ain't there yet. <laughs> I still get angry. Yeah, I still get angry. It's ten years later, and I still get angry. So I'm still working on. It. I'm a work in progress <laughs> uh, because it just seems so senseless. Uh, it, it left us all just in utter disbelief. Uh, it was one. It was one of the saddest days in my life, but it was also one of the most inspirational days. Just seeing how he handled it. Yeah, you know. But what I, when I was telling the story the other day, Joe, and one of the things I remember, and I don't know if you remember this, everybody kept coming into the little conference room where we were, and they just kept telling Buck how great an ambassador he was, right. and how much he'd done for the game of baseball. And, and I think it started to kind of, you know, pee Buck off a little bit. He finally just said, hey, look, I could play. I could play. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Get all this ambassador <laughs> stuff. <laughs> you know, I could play. And, uh, and so it was so funny. It was just one of those moments, uh, uh, as I recall that day, and, and I tell the story all the time, when I went down to deliver the news to all that mass of people who had gathered on the oh. field, man, it was the longest walk of my life. Yeah. You know, because it was such an emotional day, and I'm, you know, I'm really trying to coach myself. Bob, you can't cry. Right. You can't cry. Whatever you do, you can't cry. This is your job. And as you know, the more I'm telling myself, tears are steady building up in mind. And so I get in on the field where all the folks had gathered, and I break the news to them. And, and of course, you recall, it was so emotional for everybody. Everybody. I mean, it, I mean, it was such an emotional day. There were so many tears in that room. And then Buck walks in and absolutely captivates yes. the room. You know, I call it a concession speech because I don't know what else to call it. You know, and he delivers this amazing concession speech where he basically implored all of us not to be angry and not to be bitter. Don't cry for old Buck. Yeah. yeah, don't cry for old Buck. Yeah. You know, and, and I'm sitting there and I'm shaking my head in this utter disbelief on how he's doing this. I still people today, I still think what he did upon learning that he did not get in the Hall of Fame and the way he embraced that and handled that that day was one of the most, you know, amazing displays of strength of character that I'd ever witnessed. And then when he fast forward and he goes to Cooperstown, delivers this speech, which I still say today is one of the most selfless acts yeah. in American sports history. Because the rest of the world was saying this should be your Hall of Fame right? speech. And he, there he is speaking on the hands of 17 dead folks. Yeah. They didn't have a voice, Joe. They didn't have a voice. And he was being that voice for them, despite the fact that so many of us felt that he had been wrong. And, and somehow he rose above that. And it was, a, I mean, it was an amazing thing to bear witness to. And then sadly, a little over two months later, he passed away himself. Yeah, it was so, it was so emotional. I, I remember thinking... You know that that is the last chapter in my book, and and you know I was I knew that the you know it was going to end, and I expected the book to end with this crescendo of him going into the yeah. Hall of Fame, like we all did. I mean, that's what yeah. everybody. It yeah. was it was not just uh, depressing or sad or or uh, even you know for people who it made angry. It wasn't just those emotions. It was shock. Nobody in that room, in that Negro Leagues uh, Museum, great, you know, that field where you held the press conference, every single one of them had come for a celebration. There wasn't a single one of them who even thought that was a possibility that Buck wasn't going to get elected. Not even remotely. No. Not even remotely. So I remember. We knew it was a a process. 
Right. You know, but it's just a prospect. You know, surely Buck is here. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's why they had the process, as you and I have talked about. <laughs> so, so, but I remember thinking, okay, so this is going to be this big crescendo moment. And, you know, of course, in my mind, it's my first book. I'm excited. I'm thinking, okay, this, you know, when Morgan Freeman plays him in the movie, uh, this is going to be the moment where, you know, Morgan Freeman's going to be up there and he's going to be talking about what the game meant to him and, and uh, you know, take, doing his Hall of Fame speech. And it's the perfect ending for the, for the, for the movie. And it would have been a perfect ending for a movie. But I really believe it was the most fitting ending for who Buck O'Neill is. Not, oh, it, it was an injustice upon injustice, but you know what? Buck's life had been filled with injustice. And it exactly. was the way he rose above those injustices that defined him as a human being. There's no question about it because his star rose that much more the way he handled that entire situation, if that's possible. Yeah. People fell that much more in love with Buck O'Neill because of the way he handled the defeat of not getting in the Hall of Fame. And you, it was almost poetic, as you mentioned, that a man who had endured so much and so many injustices through his life would receive one final injustice, at least in our eyes. Sure. You know, again, the people who voted obviously didn't feel that way, and they're certainly entitled to, to their opinion. I think they're wrong. <laughs> I, do, I do, too. <laughs> you know, and, and somehow or another, he, he just continually rose above it. And he did it with an eloquence and a grace and a demeanor that, again, gave us such a wonderful example of how we should live. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And, and he used his life to do that. And, and, and I think as a result, any of us who encountered Buck O'Neill are better because of it. No question. No you know? question. Yeah. Now, I will say uh, that the Hall of Fame, the Baseball Hall of Fame, who always uh love Buck. And and oh, Buck absolutely. Buck had a huge, huge role at the at the Hall of Fame. He was on the Veterans Committee for many years. And he loved the place. Um they've really done right by Buck O'Neill. I mean there is a statue of Buck O'Neill. It's the only statue in the museum uh is, yeah. is of Buck O'Neill and it's right there when you walk in and enter. Uh there is a wonderful uh, award that they give out every three years, the Buck O'Neill Award, that is dedicated to people who who embrace the spirit of who Buck was, which is a wonderful award. The, the Hall of Fame has done done great things, in my opinion. Uh, you know, but they they can never, in my mind, put him into the Hall of Fame. Now it's not even even if he somehow things change and they elect him in it. It's that part of it that to me that's the sadness is. He should have gone into the Hall of Fame, and because he's gone now. and now he can't. Yeah, and now he can't. No, he's gone now. He, he he's gone now, and you know what we have are are obviously those great memories that we all shared, and and, and I tip my hat to the Hall of Fame for coming back and doing something that was certainly not token in nature by the creation of the Buck O'Neill Lifetime Achievement Award, and as you mentioned, erected the life-size statue of Buck. He's the only baseball player to have a life-size statue in the Hall of Fame. Those things it will make sure that Buck lives in perpetuity. Uh, we will, every time they present that award, you have to remember Buck O'Neill. And certainly when you remember Buck O'Neill, we believe that people will remember his museum. And, and so from that standpoint, Buck certainly lives in perpetuity. And, you know, but, in, in a, and again, the way he handled that, the, the eventuality of this award being issued in his name, Buck seemingly had a way of bringing 
joy out of despair. Right. And he did it all of his life. And even in death, he did the exact same thing. You know, uh, so yeah, it, but again, none of these gone. You know, and I get people all the time, you know, do you want to try to put an effort to get back in the Hall of Fame? Me no. too. Yeah. I don't. You know, and, and again, you say the right things. You want to say the right things, and you don't want to, you know, come off abrasive or anything of that nature. But again, at this point, it just would not be the same to me if he got in. You know, I don't try to dissuade people from whatever they want to do in terms of beating that drum if they certainly choose to. But for me, it just wouldn't be the same. I feel the same way. I feel, and again, I mean, to to a T, I feel the same way. Uh, I feel I, people feel very emotional about it and want to do something. They want to right the wrong, and I respect and admire that in them. So they want to. They, I, I get all the time. Hey, we're starting this to try to get Buck O'Neill the Hall of Fame, and I would never discourage them from doing that. But it wouldn't mean anything to me. It wouldn't no, mean anything it, to it, you. It, it just wouldn't. Yeah, I mean, it it, it had to happen while he was alive. I mean, that's and and it should have. But again, I I the other thing I hear from people all the time is, "Oh, this this killed Buck," or "This this this helped," and I don't believe that for one minute. It it, sure Buck wanted to go Hall of Fame, and you and I both know he was disappointed that he didn't get in. Of course he was. He was. Of course he was. But fuck, fuck overcame a lot bigger than that. He did. Oh, absolutely. I have to remember that. You know, I have to remind myself, Joe, that not getting in the Hall of Fame pales in comparison yes. to some of the things that this man had to endure in his lifetime. And that's why he was able to push aside his disappointment and be genuinely happy for those 17 who had gotten a place. Because I don't think that people are arguing that the folks that they put in didn't deserve to be in. Right. I mean, there were some questionable choices. But it was just the fact that it seemed to be so egregious that Buck was left out. It's like, how could you leave Buck out? You know, because Buck is the guy that made us care about all these other people. That's exactly right. Lee Judd so beautifully portrayed with Buck standing there with Moses trying to get over to the promised land together. You know, so Buck has got all these other folks into the Hall of Fame, but when it was his turn, he gets pushed away. And so that's one of my favorite cartoons. Lee Judd, who's a wonderful editorial cartoonist, is still here for the Kansas City Star. Uh, I remember he put that, that cartoon out, and I thought it was absolutely brilliant making that parallel to, to Moses, who led the people to the promised land, couldn't cross over to Buck, getting, you know, that same situation. And so, um, but again, he just seemed to, seemed to rise above it all. Sure he did. And, and, and the great thing with Buck was, Buck felt like he was, he did, he did get to the promised land, right? I mean, Buck, Buck felt like he got to play with the greatest players. He got to be with the greatest musicians. He got to be around the game of baseball, you know, for 85 years of his life. I mean, it's, it, Buck lived a beautiful, wonderful life. And that's how he saw it. And, and that's how I want to see it. I mean, that's, that's, that's exactly, you know, he would always tell you, don't feel sorry for me because I didn't play in the major league. Feel sorry for the people who didn't see me play. That's right. They're the ones who missed out. <laughs> All right. So I'm going to end this with you, and I'm going to put you on the spot. Your favorite Buck O'Neill story. Wow. You know, there there are so many. Of Too them. many. Uh, you, know, and, you know, I remember I was sitting in the back of the room, and inevitably whenever Buck spoke, somebody wanted to hear the Nancy story. Oh. And you and I were like, oh, no, not the Nancy story. <laughs> 
And but when it got to the punchline, we're both laughing, even though we had heard this story at least a thousand times, because Buck would never cheat you on the story. If he told the story, he was going to tell you the story like he was telling it to you for the very first time. And, you know, it was always captivating to me on how he told the story, the, the voice inflections and everything that he gave you. And, and so I think one of my, one of my favorite Buck O'Neill stories, though, is a story that he tells of him playing on the Satchel Page All-Stars. And so they're playing in the Denver Post Tournament. And so Buck says Satchel's on the mound and says they're playing an all-white semi-pro team from the Coors Brewing Company. And Buck says the first kid, Joe, from the Coors team gets up into the batter's box. He digs in. Satchel throws him a fastball. Kid swung as hard as he could, topped it, dribbled it down the third base line. It stays fair. The kid beats it out, gets an infield hit. Well, Buck says about that time, one of the kids from the Coors dugout steps out on top of the dugout steps, and he yells out, let's beat him. He ain't nothing but an overrated donkey. Well, as you know, so famously, Satchel's nickname for Buck was Nancy. Yep. And so Satchel looks over at first base. He says, Nancy, did you hear that? Buck said, yes, Satchel, I heard him. He said, Nancy. Bring him in. So Buck is playing first base. He turns, he motions for the outfield to take a couple of steps in. And Satchel looks over at first. He says, Nancy, bring them all the way in. And as Buck would say, there were seven guys kneeling around the mound. Satchel, Page, and the catcher. And Satchel strikes out the side on nine straight pitches. <laughs> he looks into the coolest dugout and says, overrated, darky, hey. And, of course, by now, Buck said, get this kid. This was embarrassed. He was crying. All the players came out to apologize to Satchel and his teammates. But Buck would always say if he had one game to win and any choice of any pitcher from any era, it would be the legendary Leroy Satchel Page. He said, you might beat him when he was out there messing around. But when he was locked and loaded, forget about it. Forget about it. That's Bob Kendrick of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. Thanks for listening.